This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. My first guest on today's show, joining me via Zoom, is my colleague, Ethan Mollick. Ethan is an associate professor at the Wharton School, and he also studies and teaches innovation and entrepreneurship. So it's a terrific pleasure to have him. He's also the author of a new book, The Unicorn's Shadow, Combating the Dangerous Myths that Hold Back Startups, Founders, and Investors. Ethan, thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So, Ethan, say that title again. It's a long one, so go ahead and say it. (laughs) So the main title is The Unicorn Shadow, uh, the unicorn being a billion-dollar-plus startup, uh, and it's a dangerous myth that hold back investors, founders, and Entrepreneurs, I am trying to remember what the subtitle is myself. <laughs> okay, well, we, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the title in a minute, but I, it, dangerous myths is a key element of the subtitle. So give me an example of a dangerous myth. So um, one of the most important things that we've sort of found about entrepreneurship is that talent is very evenly distributed, like anyone can be an entrepreneur, but because we see certain people's entrepreneurs, and I talk about myths in the book, like entrepreneurs tend to be young or entrepreneurs tend to be men, um, those myths become reinforcing and lots of people don't enter entrepreneurship or don't get a chance because they don't see themselves as founders because of what they believe a founder needs to look like or be. Yeah. All right. So I want to go back to your first sentence because it doesn't quite make sense to me. So talent is evenly distributed. I get that. But then you said, so anyone can be an entrepreneur. Those don't seem to follow to me, right? So clarify a little bit what you mean. Yeah. Fair enough. So so not that anyone should be a founder, but we actually haven't found in research, right? There's no clear aspect that you need a particular personality type to be an entrepreneur. You need to be from a particular kind of background to be a successful entrepreneur. Um, And so it's not that every human on earth should be an entrepreneur, but that you can't tell from surface characteristics who would be a good founder. Yeah. Well, okay. So you can't tell from surface characteristics, but are you really saying there is nothing there are no characteristics of individuals that would be predictive of entrepreneurial success? So there are, there's a lot of characteristics of individuals, right? So this is a complicated question. So yeah. social capital is strongly predictive of entrepreneurial success, right? The, that, what, is that, what does that uh, mean? Yeah. So the people you know, having mm-hmm. good connections, very predictive of entrepreneurial success. Age is predictive of entrepreneurial success with older founders being more successful. Oh. Uh, the, the average age for a founder in the US is 42. The average age for a founder who gets venture capital is 42. The average age for a founder who launches, or the age range for a founder who launches a hypergrowth company in the top 0.01% of all companies in terms of employment growth is 45 to 59. Wow. Um, and that's the work by uh, Pierre Azoulay and Danny Kim, who's another one of our colleagues here among yeah. others. Yeah. So, um, so, and similarly, uh, Bill Kerr and colleagues have a paper out showing that there's not really a entrepreneurial personality type per se that predicts success. So a lot of things we look at, some characteristics that everyone sort of trusts as indicating someone's an entrepreneur, you've got that entrepreneurial personality, doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be predictive. 
Um, well, things like age are. So it's not that nothing is predictive, but it's yeah. that the things we think predict entrepreneurial success often don't. Yeah. Okay. So that's super interesting. Let, let me ask a, a question I've often wondered about. If we look at the current public discourse right now about, about privilege, one of the things that seems to be going around on the web is that is that entrepreneurs are disproportionately come from privileged backgrounds. Um, is that is that true, by the way, or or might that be true in some segments of entrepreneurship? So I would say entrepreneurship overall. I I don't know if there's a privilege advantage overall. Yeah. I mean, entrepreneurship also is, you know, a major method that you know of 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 immigrant entrepreneurship, of neighborhood-based entrepreneurship. So we have lots of definitions, right? Are you starting mm -hmm. a dry cleaner or restaurant or yeah. are you starting Microsoft, right? Um, and I think it's fair to say though that venture capital tends to go to individuals who are privileged at the very least because of the universities that they go to and the connections they make there. But I, so I think we have to be careful when we talk about entrepreneurship, about what kind of entrepreneurship, but there certainly is cases where, you know, the Matthew effect, the rich get richer is certainly yeah. true in yeah. entrepreneurship. And, and that would also tie into your first point about, about social capital, right? Is that a lot of the social capital is probably tightly connected. And, and so if you're in that network, you probably have, probably have certain advantages. Yeah. Yes. And, and the addition with those networks is all networks are, uh, you know, I have a research paper with Jason Greenberg looking at this. All networks are shaped by homophily. So we like people who are like ourselves. We're naturally attracted to people who have similarities with us. Mm -hmm. And that means that pre-existing networks, which tend to be Ivy League, tend to be predominantly white, predominantly men, tend to shut out people who don't fit those characteristics. Yeah. Not necessarily even because of overt bias, though there are cases yeah. of that. But just because getting access to those networks, if you don't fit into them, can be very hard. Yeah. Well, you know, this, you, we, we've, we've touched on an issue, a question I wanted to ask you, which is, I think a lot of our conversations about entrepreneurship, certainly a lot of what we read in the press and listen to and podcasts and so forth, is focused on the big successes, venture-backed entrepreneurship. So how much of the research we have is really biased? I mean, I think if we were to look at a profile of our listeners, they you know, sort of by definition, they can't fall into, into, that, into that category. There are relatively few of those highly successful large companies, the unicorns, as it, as it were. So to what extent do the findings we see in the, in the academic literature and that you report in your book also apply to very small business? I think it's a really good question. And the answer is the academic's favorite answer to everything, which is it depends. Yeah. Um, so I think we just need to be cautious about what we're talking about here. So in the book, for example, I have a chapter on raising venture capital, but it also talks about things like crowdfunding, which often has nothing to do with yeah. venture capital. So yeah. there's different pathways, but there's some lessons that are fairly universal. Who you pick as your founder, how you generate ideas, um, how you think about you know, hiring. So, mm -hmm. so I think it's our job as people who study this to separate out stuff that's universal and not everything that we teach entrepreneurs needs to come from entrepreneurship research, right? right? A lot of what we learn about good management or good innovation practice is applicable to any kind of organization, yeah. whether it's a small startup, a big startup, a, you know, whatever it is, right? So I, I think we know a lot about a lot of organizations. I think the question is, how do we put that together? And that's part of why I wrote the book was, you know, I wanted to kind of combine the, the knowledge in, in, in the field and, and put it in, in a place where it would be accessible. Yeah. Well, actually, having just asked that question, I want to ask you about something in the book that I think probably is really focused on 
on settings in which you're seeking outside capital. You have a, you have a whole section on pitching. Uh, tell us some of the surprising insights around pitching, the biases and myths around pitching. And so, by the way, I think there's a very specific kind of pitch you give to venture yeah. capitalists, but every entrepreneur is pitching, uh -huh. right? So there's always going to be pitching. I, I think um, one clear finding that's come up over the years from a lot of entrepreneurship research uh, is that, uh, that for professional inv investors, style doesn't matter. So unless mm -hmm. you're extremely charismatic, it's unlikely that the quality, like the style of your pitch, how good a public speaker you are will affect your chance of success. Now for amateur investors, there's a bigger impact of style, right? Yeah. Because they they're, have less filters in place. But just like Carl, when you and I grade a paper, right? We, we instantly kind of know whether this person has that or not. And even if it's beautifully written or not beautifully written, that's not gonna affect our decision-making as much because we've seen a thousand of those papers. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, expert entrepreneurs, less affected by style. Um, there's a lot of other kind of interesting pieces too in, in how pitching works in terms of that um, people respond really well a theme in the book is that it's very hard to identify who's going to succeed in advance. So successful entrepreneurs often show you the signs that you expect to see of a successful entrepreneur. So mm -hmm. they wear the right clothes, they'll talk the right way, use the right language, they'll get mm -hmm. the right office space as a signal of success. So it's a very kind of complex game in a lot of ways, how you pitch uh, and how you persuade. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, one, one more question about this rarefied world of, of VC. You said it's very hard to predict in advance who will be successful. Uh, I I actually don't know that it's in your book, but I know you've 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 commented on it. Um, if you can't predict in advance who's going to succeed, what do venture capitalists do? Like, are they doing anything but taking a fee? It's a really interesting question. So, but, so let's let's talk about two different things. On one side, venture capitalists clearly do stuff, right? So there's some estimates that they add considerably to GDP by funding startup companies. They, the management advice they seem to give, while often bad to founders, in other words, they kick a lot of founders out, seems to make mm -hmm. the companies they invest in more successful. So VCs do those things. Where mm -hmm. venture capital is more myth mythologized is their ability to select winners based on a particular insight. Right, and I said a bunch of studies in my book. I have to like a, this study. And, and by the way, you could tell who might win or lose from just a naive screen. If a bunch of people pitch to you, you could figure out, okay, this person is more likely to win than others. But once you pass a certain quality threshold, you can't tell. So there's this great study I cited, uh, the World Bank did in Nigeria, where yeah. they had um, they had amateur, uh, they had, not amateur, they had entrepreneurs at a pitch contest. So they'd already passed through a bunch of screens and they brought in academic experts, a panel of economists. So you can decide how you <laughs> feel about that. Um, they brought in, um, they used AI and they brought in a bunch of venture experts to judge which startups would succeed. And nobody was much better than chance. Uh, so there is this really interesting cycle that was has been des uh, described by, um, by Olaf Sorensen and others about how this works, which is that VCs make a bunch of bets in a bunch of companies. They double down on the successful ones. If they get lucky and they find a winner nobody else got, uh, found, then they get the reputation for being incredibly insightful. Mm. And then every other startup will seek them out because they want to be picked by the person who found Uber before anyone else did. And as our other colleague, uh, uh, David Shu has shown, you actually get a 15% discount if you're a high status VC when you invest in a company, wow. they'll take a lower valuation. So these people get the best deals and people, and they get it at a cheaper price and it becomes self-sustaining because they keep yeah. winning, yeah. right? So you need one win as a venture capitalist uh, that you can tell everyone you're great at and then everyone will come to you.
Wow, interesting. So this would explain, I mean, it's it's one of those things, you'd rather be lucky than good, right? So so if you look at the Sequoias, the benchmarks, the Andreas and Horowitzes, you'd say, well, it could be that they're really good. It could be they got super lucky on on early in in their early investing history. Yeah. yeah. It's like the combination of the two. They were they were yeah. lucky, you know, they were good enough to get there and then lucky afterwards. Yeah. Okay. So let me then if if you can't predict who's successful. And that that's, suggests a significant role for exogenous factors, factors that are outside our control. But I do wonder, we're both in the business of trying to teach entrepreneurs. So give me your thoughts on what's teachable and what evidence we have that entrepreneurship is teachable. So this has been, I think, one of the more exciting fields of research in the last two or three years. Um, and I, I think what's come out of this is overwhelming evidence that entrepreneurship is teachable and especially that there are a couple of skills that we know we can teach because they're actually good randomized controlled trials showing that people who learn things from entrepreneurship classes do better. So there's been a series of really cool work out of Italy um, and elsewhere looking at teaching experimentation. Uh, so formal hypothesis building and testing when you're launching a startup, something I know we talk about and teach in our classes. And the companies that went through that process have twice as high revenue a year later as the ones who get a, a control study where they learn the same techniques but don't learn to approach it in a scientific way, the way we teach how entrepreneurship works. Uh, uh, Scott Stern of MIT and a bunch of his, uh, uh, his contemporaries have found that you could teach pitching. So people who go through pitch training do better afterwards. There's work by, um, uh, by a variety of people who, showing that you could teach better networking and social skills. Mm -hmm. So, and we also know that just in general, teaching management matters, right? So teaching people how to better manage people, how to better hire, those all have results as well. So I, I think entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship is highly teachable in terms of the skill, we can make you better at it. Um, you know, and I think that since there is not really a dominant personality type. The other thing that entrepreneurship education seems to do is increases people's self-efficacy, their ability to think they can succeed. And that is linked to trying as well. They're not necessarily the success. Yeah. Wow. Super, super interesting. Um, all, right. all right. Well, let me just, let me just remind our listeners. I'm Carl Ulrich and this is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Today I'm joined by Ethan Mollick, an associate professor at the Wharton School and the author of the new book, The Unicorn's Shadow. All right. Well, given I just said the unicorn shadow, tell us about this title. So, uh, as as a true nerd, I wanted to. You know, always want to write a fantasy novel, and I, you know, <laughs> but unfortunately, I have the wrong expertise for it. So I thought I'd get a title that doubled for both. Actually, I know um, the, the real. The, so unicorns are the billion dollar valuation private companies. So the hot startups are called unicorns. At least they have been for the last five or six years. And what I find when I teach entrepreneurship, when I talk to uh, founders, when I talk to potential founders anywhere in the world, they're all obsessed with these unicorns, right? These are the examples of success. People write books about them. Um, they're covered extensively. They're, many of the founders become celebrities of one sort or another. And, you know, I think we all know the danger in academia of selecting on the dependent variable, selecting on successes and then going backwards. And unicorns are persuasive, right? They tell good stories. They have lessons to teach us. They often have um, large amounts of boosters, whether it's in the media or other venture capitalists. And so I think what tends to happen for us is we look at these unicorns as examples of what we should do um, because they won, rather than looking at, um, you know, thinking about them as the winners of a lottery as well as by skill. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard to do this, right? Humans, we, we, tend, to give a, we tend to view successes as you know, as accomplishments 
um, with, and that the anyone who we don't see as a success clearly didn't make it. But that's not actually how the population works. Yeah. All right. And then so so I also wonder. I you know I follow you on Twitter and I and I remember observing some interesting experiments you did related to the book. So I wonder if you could talk about about writing a book as an entrepreneurial venture. Did you apply your insights from entrepreneurship to this project? And I suppose the way to generalize that question is to what extent can the lessons of entrepreneurship be applied to, to managerial life more generally? Yeah, and I, I think that's a really interesting question. And actually, I, I'm, it's not my book, but Noam Wasserman, who uh, who studies entrepreneurship, actually has a book on applying entrepreneurship to life entrepreneurial thinking to life decisions. So yeah, I think remind it's general... me what it's. Remember, do you remember what it's called? Let's just give a shout out to Noam. Noam Wasserman, uh, HBS professor. I'll have to, I'll have to look. Uh, okay, look that's all right. Sorry, sorry. But you can, you, you can, they can yeah. they can find it on Amazon. They can find it. Um, <laughs> and. Um, uh, but I, I think for me, it, it very much that way, right? So I conducted experiments, right? That's the dominant lesson here is experiments. So I had people vote on the cover of the book. Mm -hmm. um, I've tried a bunch of different kinds of tweets and approaches to see what would get traction. Um, so trying to do that upfront analysis, but also diving in and then making course corrections as we go, right? So no one was expecting COVID. I would normally be in a studio with you right now, right. as opposed to looking at you over Zoom uh, and wondering if my camera is working well. And, you know, I feel a little weird. My first book, I wrote a book on games in business, and it came out during the financial, just the financial crisis happened just as the book came out. And now I wrote this book and COVID happened immediately afterwards. So I'm, I feel like there should be a funding drive to stop me from writing again, uh, potentially. <laughs> uh, but it created a lot of changes, right? So the, the stories we tell are a little bit different. So it was about pivoting, which is something else we talked about in the book, yeah. and adaption to that direction. Um, so, you know, it, it really was an attempt to, to distill that out. Um, and to take that sort of experimentation to the writing process as well. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you mentioned COVID and the coronavirus. Uh, get, t tell me what your observations are, if we can make some observations already, about how that is changing the entrepreneurial ecosystem, how the current pandemic is changing the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So I'm going to start technical and get inspirational, I hope. Sure. Again. So yeah. the, the, the technical start of this is, um, is that you know, we know in bad times, people tend to launch more companies, but that those companies are hurt in the long term because the environment is often more restrictive. You don't get as much early funding, as many early customers that can hurt you in your growth. Anecdotally, venture capital took a hit, but seems to be, we know the numbers took a hit, VC made less investments, but there seems to be at least chatter that they are making more investments now. So mm -hmm. it might be that the VC gap was not a big one. Mm -hmm. Lots of people are going into startups. It's a good time to think about startups. Um, but, you know, we have to be aware that in bad economic times, startups do suffer just like everybody else. They're not counter -sick. Okay, so let me just pause you right there, make sure I understand the, the data. So there, there's a lot of stuff, a lot, you know, a lot of the rah-rah stuff I read on Twitter or I see on Twitter around entrepreneurship is there's never been a better time for a startup. Um, is that actually just not true? Are, pan, are, are, are crises bad times to start? Companies? So crises, you know, crises create opportunity. But yeah. on, uh, so on average, there are some, there'll be some huge winners out of this. Yeah. But on average, we know the average company launched during a downturn 
does worse than companies not to launch down during a downturn, even 10 years later. Wow. And that, that's because yeah. initial conditions matter so much to startups. What happens at the beginning that if you yeah. get up to a slower start, because there's less customers, there's less money, like then you're going to be off to a slower start for the rest of the, your startups history. Yeah. Okay, good. Now I derailed you back, back on, on the original. Yeah. And, yeah. and so the, and there's a mitigating circumstance, by the way, startups that solve urgent problems, seem to avoid this fate as much. So mm -hmm. if you are helping people with COVID related issues, you don't have this downside, okay? So, uh, but you know, I wanna compare the high tech startup that's trying to replace Zoom or think about how to make companies more efficient remotely or handle cost decreases or logistic problems from starting a mom and pop shop on the corner where we have more evidence that that will hurt you. Now, the, the flip side of this is, you know, more, is more generally, you know, when, when systems break down and there is this sort of disruption, then there's a real opportunity for startups to move into markets, right? So mm -hmm. you and I both teach entrepreneurs. And I will say that, you know, over previous years, we've had tons of successes out of Wharton, billions of dollars of venture capital raised, lots of big startups. A lot of them were aimed at, you know, our, a lot of the startup ideas I see, not necessarily the big successes, were aimed at kind of narrow consumer niches or mm -hmm. just trying to deliver something better. And what's been interesting, I don't know if you've seen the same thing, teaching over the last semester is a focus on sort of fundamentally, now retail's broken, what do we do, mm. right? Mm. Now, now suddenly all these tools that, we were, that no companies were using for digital productivity or matter, how do we think about reinventing those things? So I think it's a chance to make big picture changes in a way people didn't expect. Um, I think there's an opportunity to, 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 you know, uh, to actually build new and exciting things. But it's, you know, it's a tough environment to do it. But I think that there's an opportunity for the, for the next big launches to happen. Yeah. I, I wonder uh, also about some of the inputs, whether they've gotten um, cheaper. So, for instance, I, I, I would guess that the labor market, I mean, it was getting, you know, I'd spend most of my time in Silicon Valley. It was getting impossible to hire and rents were ridiculous. Though, both of those inputs have, have, I think, have fallen dramatically in cost. Um, but but it may be those factors don't compensate for the for the challenges around markets. I mean, I think revenues tend to trump costs in terms yeah. of growing okay. your company. So now I think the real questions are what happens to you know to what sticks after COVID, right? So right. this is you know this is a terrible downturn with the additional burden of disease. We have had downturns in terrible times before. We know that the economy will bounce back, the startup community will bounce back. What changes forever, right? So mm -hmm. people are speculating about is this the finally the death of distance? Can I, you know, right. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Can Milwaukee be an entrepreneurship hub? I'm still doubtful about that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that a lot of that will snap back. I mean, the average distance between a venture capitalist and a company to invest in is 60 miles, and 40% of VC investment is within a mile or two. Yeah, of, but they're also the but they're also uh, uh, tall, Ivy League educated white guys, and yes. and 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 so some of the things that stick stick, not for good reasons necessarily. Uh, yes, I agree. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't think this is a good thing, right? These are bad. Right. These are but but and that's imposed by actual human problems also, which is that portfolio. You need to be able to visit your portfolio companies, and if they're far right. away, that's expensive and difficult right. to do. So right. will people keep thinking of Zoom as a good substitute for getting on a plane and spending a day at a startup? I don't know. You yeah. know, I, and I, so I think this is not sticking for necessarily bad reasons. It's sticking for right. reasons that humans right. do like to be together. So right. if this is indeed the death of distance, which I'm doubtful about, then we, we, we're going to be in for a startup renaissance across the United States. If yeah. it isn't, expect San Francisco, New York, 
um, and to a lesser extent sort of Boston, Austin, and you know, other companies, the other areas of Chicago to bounce back. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think like most, I mean, I just put in my two cents. It seems like most things, there's always some spring back, but you do nudge the, the baseline a little bit. So it might be that we can see hybrid models in which you're spending one or two days in the office instead of four, four or five days, things like that. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. Let me, let me turn, let me just turn a little bit to, uh, to you. So tell me a little bit about, tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Let's see here. So um, I was a founder myself. So I started a company with, uh, with uh, a college roommate after college, uh, after doing a little bit of consulting. And uh, he's awesome. And, uh, but I made every possible mistake uh, in running the company. We, we, invent, we were, uh, our company invented the paywall. Um, so you can thank us for not getting access to, uh, to having nice to pay word. access. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, and, uh, but I went through the process, realized that we, you know, we were successful, but I made every mistake. So I thought I'll get an MBA and figure out how to do this right. Mm -hmm. And went to MBA, MIT to get the MBA and realized that like, we still didn't know a lot. So that's why it sort of dove into this as a, uh, a scholar was to try and figure out what do we actually need to know differently. And that's why the book is sort of a distillation of that research-based kind of work, not just mine, obviously. Yeah. What year, what year did you start your MBA? Started my MBA in, uh, let's see, in 2002, I believe. Ah, okay. So I was long gone. I taught MIT for a little while, but I had left by, by for about six would, years. Maybe yeah. I would have got back into entrepreneurship instead of <laughs> going to the PhD. Um, All right. So then you, so then you, you were in your MBA and what, what, what possessed you to say, Hey, I want to do, I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for a PhD. You didn't start, you didn't do the MBA with the intent of doing a PhD. Not at all. No, yeah. I, I was actually kind of recruited into the PhD program. I, I had this moment uh, where I was looking at a startup. I had an offer from a consulting firm, and then I had the you know the the generous and I'm doing air quotes if you could see me uh, sort of yeah. pay package for the next seven years that comes from being a full time PhD student. Yeah, those uh, um, were the days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think that the, 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 the stipend was, uh, was $20,400, which always made me laugh because it meant that, they were, that there was a possibility they would give us $20,500, but thought we'd waste the extra hundred. <laughs> um, so, um, but, you know, I, I think that the issue, you know, that for me, it was that it was that curiosity. It was the fact that we didn't know the answers to this stuff. Um, and I really do think that's been the, you know, I, I wish I could get credit for it. It's not me, but mm -hmm. there's been a real revolution, I think, in the last 10 years uh, or 15 years of using empirical methods to look at entrepreneurship and we're starting to get answers. And it's been a really exciting time to study this stuff. Hmm. Um, you know, I, you know, I cite your work all the time as some of the, you know, examples of like turning innovation research on its head of actually having data and saying like, no, no, you should do this. This is probably, mm -hmm. if you don't have any better idea, mm -hmm. the data seems to suggest this is where you should start. Mm -hmm. And even though really smart people will tell you they don't do that, you should probably start this way. And that's where yeah. I feel we are with entrepreneurship as well. Yeah. What are, give me, give me a few, a few interesting questions that are still out there. What are sort of the big problems, big questions in, in academic entrepreneurship? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of, so um, the most boring question is what is entrepreneurship? So fortunately, we haven't had that discussion and that will continue forever. What is an entrepreneur? Yeah. But, um, but I think, so I think, you know, on the side that will interest listeners here on the practical side of things, mm -hmm. I think we're really, there's still a lot of interest in those very early decisions. We know that teams get, decisions get imprinted early on in startups. So what choices should you make in what order? 
And I think mm -hmm. entrepreneurial strategy, we're just trying to crack strategy. So really trying to figure out how you run these experiments most successfully. How many times should you pivot your idea, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and when should you pivot? What's the optimal time to, to stick with a company? And, you know, and when's the time to abandon it? So those are some really fundamental choices. And then I think scaling is still an interesting issue. So when do you, how do we transition out of entrepreneurship mode to growth mode? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you do that? And how do you transfer leadership in that way? So I think those are all really interesting questions. And we're starting to get purchase on them, but there's a lot left to answer. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, something I've always wanted to ask you, you, you know, I follow you on Twitter and I'm going to, at the end of the show, I'll point our listeners to your, to, well, I might as well, E. Mollick. E-M-O-L-L-I-C-K, E-M-O-L-L-I-C-K. And you, do, you have this very interesting practice, which is nearly every day, maybe it's every day, you post a summary of an academic paper. And, and, and surprisingly, because they're academic papers, they're, they're interesting, their results are interesting. So, but I wonder about, if you could talk about your workflow. How do you, how do you find those papers? How do you digest them? How much time do you spend on that? And then how do you prepare those, those summaries? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I'm just constantly like I'm I'm twitchy and easily bored, right? Is the uh, thing. So like yeah. I I prefer to do this sort of stuff than you know, like I, I'm not like great at television. Um, I can <laughs> you know I can handle books, but Twitter is sort of like exactly the bite size kind of element. Yeah. And I'm yeah. just constantly like, for me, I was one of those people who like the web was built for because I'm like constantly curious about like, oh, why does that exist? So I'm constantly yeah. googling and checking yeah. things. Um, so I just have a backlog. I use Pocket to save articles that are interesting. Pocket. Um, Pockets a, is a really nice like a bookmarking tool. Mm -hmm. So I, I save a lot of stuff to Pocket. Um, and then, um, and so, and I also use Browsine, which if, I don't know if you know, was it terrific, mm -hmm. which is um, an app that actually puts all the academic journals accessible through a library in one place. So you can actually wow. just flip through them and read them because paywalls are the enemy. I'm sorry again that I didn't yeah. started that, but paywalls <laughs> are really the enemy for, uh, for the future. It's why, by the way, the summary is like, I find that almost nobody clicks through the links I provide. So oh, I, really? I actually, so the summary is it? Yeah. The summary yeah. is it. Unless it goes yeah. viral and then I'll post a link afterwards. I found that yeah. posting a link, no one actually, you know, and the people who do ask, it's like you type into Google Scholar, which is the other really useful piece of advice. So Google Scholar is actually, uh, uh, you know, going into, a, diving into a, a Google hole, a rabbit hole is really interesting in Google Scholar as well. So following citations forward. So I think just wide ranging kind of curiosity about this stuff helps a lot. And I just, you know, it's an enjoyable way to spend your time. Yeah, well, it sounds like you did find your calling finally <laughs> after that. that um, so again, I'll point you to Ethan's Twitter handle, handle E-Mollick. That's E-M-O-L-L-I-C-K. Uh, is that the best way to follow you, Ethan? Sure, that's definitely best. Yeah, and you can okay. find the website in the book linked to for my profile. Okay, beautiful. Okay, so Ethan, remarkably where our time that went so fast, but thanks so much for joining us today. It was awesome as always. Thank you, Carl. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.